Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church and our Sunday School lesson for August 22nd of 2021. And uh, school has started and we're kind of heading headlong into fall. And, um, you know, sometimes the weather doesn't cooperate with that. We still have a lot of hot weather, can't we? And some of those first football games that you go to are blazing hot. But so far, the Lord has been gracious to us. And today, while I'm recording this, we've had cooler weather and a lot of rain, and that's pretty good for August. We are um, looking at our New City Catechism, and the question and answer is, what do we believe by true faith? What do we believe by true faith? And they give us the answer that's kind of... Uh, capsulized in what is known as the Apostles' Creed. Now, I have a little history with this. Um, I wasn't one of the apostles. I'm not that old. But when I was a kid and my dad was in the military as a chaplain, we would go to Post Chapel uh, most weeks. And uh, there were some places we lived where mom would take me and my brother to uh, Baptist Church in town while dad went to the chapel. But there were a lot of years there. We went to chapel on Sunday morning, and then we went to a Baptist church on Sunday night and Wednesday night. Well, one of the things about the chapel that intrigued me as a little kid is it was very, very formal. And they would uh, have an altar-type table up at the front with these beautiful cloths on it and candles and that kind of thing. And then they'd have these uh, young guys that came in and they were wearing these white robes and they were carrying uh, a candle lighter and uh, they came up and lit the candles and then we had certain songs that we would sing every single week at exactly the same place uh, very liturgical very liturgical and um, you know there was a certain point where the chaplain would say he would pray and then he would say and we pray in the name of our lord who taught us to pray and then everybody recited the lord's prayer things like that and uh, the doxology that's where i first learned it and it was in the same place every single week and there was something about that that sort of enthralled me i kind of kind of liked some of that and one of the things that we did was recite the apostles creed every single week. Now, I didn't understand all of it, but I knew it. And they bring us here in the answer to uh, the question about true faith in Christ. And they recite the Apostles' Creed. Now, the reason they do that is give them a break. They're Presbyterian. And this is probably what they do in their churches every week. And there's certainly nothing wrong with it unless it just simply becomes so ritualistic you don't really think about what it is. Just because you say it, in other words, doesn't necessarily mean you believe it, right? And uh, so we want to look at it as people of faith who actually believe what this says, because it does a good job of encapsulating uh, the Christian faith. And so the question, once again... What do we believe by true faith? And the answer is everything taught to us in the gospel. Well, that, that's a mouthful when you think about it. I used to kind of think that the gospel was not really all that important. Once you got saved, you didn't really need the gospel anymore. That's baby food. That's, you know, something for just little bitty Christians and lost people. But those of us who are ready for the meat of the word, we're way past the gospel. 
Um, I've gotten a little wiser in my old age. I need the gospel and you need the gospel every day. And the gospel is all throughout the scripture. It's illustrated sometimes and pictured in the Old Testament. It's explicitly taught in the new and it is certainly for everyone. It's the good news. And it goes on to say, the Apostles' Creed expresses what we believe in these words. Okay, here it is. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. The old version says quicken the dead, but nobody knows what quick means anymore, right? We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Notice it's Catholic with a small c, and notice that it doesn't say the Roman Catholic Church. We'll explain that in a minute. And the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So there you have it. And uh, that is very old, and that was uh, something that was used in uh, churches and church gatherings from a long time ago in order to make sure that everybody believes the right thing, understands the right thing. And a lot of it was to reaffirm those truths for people that already knew it, because that never hurts anything. Memory is something that the scripture talks about. We're supposed to love the Lord with all of our mind, for one thing. And not only that, but even things like the Lord's Supper, this do in remembrance of me. Paul told Timothy to stir up the gift that is uh, in you. And he reminded Timothy of the things that he had learned at his mother and grandmother's knee. And we could go on with um, other things too. Remembering the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done is certainly important. And uh, this would be used to remind older believers of the truths that they espouse. And it would also be a chance to kind of, through the reciting of this, pass on the faith toward younger children and younger believers in there. Now, when we uh, talk about some things uh, that are a little foreign, a little strange, he descended into hell, and that's kind of a controversial thing among uh, evangelicals. Uh, some say it just simply means the grave, and sometimes the word for hell, especially in the Old Testament, can also be translated grave. Sometimes in the New, if it uses Hades, it can be the abode of the dead. Yeah, kind of, maybe, sort of, uh, that. And other people and the early church believe this, that when Jesus died on the cross, the first thing he did was to go, and as the Apostle Peter says in his epistle, to uh, make a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, one thing I'm absolutely sure about, there's a lot of things I don't understand about that, but I'm absolutely sure that he wasn't going to give demons and lost people a second chance. It wasn't that kind of thing at all. But I do think that in the first part of Revelation, Jesus describes himself as holding the keys and I do think you can make a case that he descended into the abode of the enemy 
to announce to them they were defeated, to announce his victory over death, hell, and the grave, and to take the keys as if he was saying, these are mine now, I've conquered them. And uh, so that's what it's talking about when he ascended into hell. It is not talking about he went to hell to suffer. Uh, the Word of Faith movement, that particular branch of the charismatic movement, actually teaches that he died as a sinner because he became sin on the cross, went to hell and was tortured and tormented by Satan and his demons until God the Father was able to get him out on kind of a loophole, I guess. That is absolutely not taught in the Bible. And the other thing is, when it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, uh, it's interesting that this creed was recited by people who fought against the Catholic Church and the Reformation. Why in the world would they leave that in there? Well, the idea is, first of all, it's holy. It's not the corrupt or apostate Catholic Church. And secondly, the word Catholic, as I mentioned, has a little c. The word Catholic means universal. Now, when I'm asked about the universal church, I do believe in it. I do believe all believers are enfolded into one body of Christ, the church. But most of the time in the New Testament, like 98% of the time, whenever the word church is used, it's making reference not to the universal church, but the local church. And so I'm a member of both. I'm a part of the local church because I believe that is a biblical thing. But the moment I was saved, I became a part of Christ's eternal church, his universal church, that the people in heaven now are a part of and that we're a part of as well. So uh, don't get that mixed up with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the scripture that they give us is found in the book of Jude. And uh, it says here it's Jude 3. Well, there's only one chapter in Jude, so don't let that throw you. And uh, the apostle says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's a beautiful verse. I found it necessary to write to you to contend, to stand up for, to fight for, to be vocal about the faith. Notice it has an article in front of it. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Well, the way that I've outlined this is to simply say this. It is necessary that's what Jude wants to get across. This is not optional. This is not something that he could take it or leave it. He had to do this. This was something that was necessary for believers to get and to understand. If we're not careful, we could leave everything. Let's leave all the doctrinal wrangling. Let's leave all of the uh, things about theology and the study of God and who he is and what he has done. Leave that to the ivory towers of the seminaries and of the theologians. Well, that's exactly what happened before the Reformation. You see, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, is not considered a cult because it's not a split off of Christianity. In fact, they're right. It was the original uh, gathering of believers and all of that. But they started kind of neglecting doctrine and theology at about the third century or so. 
And uh, Constantine was the emperor of Rome, and he saw a sign of the cross in the stars when he was asking the gods to give him victory in battle. And so it was at that point that he became a Christian and then declared Christianity legal in Rome. That was both good and bad. The good part of it was the church was no longer under persecution. And so instead of running for their lives and being imprisoned and suffering, they were able to sit and think and talk and do theology and um, all kinds of creeds and doctrinal statements came out of that. And also a lot of things were proclaimed as uh, heresy. And uh, that was a good thing. That was a very good thing, by the way. And over time, though, something happened. People started just going to church and they started incorporating ritualism and things like that into their, their worship. And it became a meaningless ritualism. They just did it. And they tended to think that if I do these things, then my soul will go to heaven when it dies. And so it became more of a salvation by works. They began to see justification as a process rather than a point in time. And that led to all kinds of things. And mainly they strayed away from the word of God. In church tradition and the teachings of the Bishop of Rome as he was first known, later to be known as the Pope, became um, ex cathedra or whenever he spoke from the throne of the church, then he was infallible and things like that. And they got all, all mixed up. And so the reformers, when they found the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word of God, they wanted to reform all of those things. They never intended to actually break away from the Roman Catholic Church just to reform it, to make it right, to get it doctrinally sound. Well, of course, the Pope and other people, um, that the church back then was so tied in with government and kings and that kind of thing that they weren't going to let that happen. And so the early reformers were forced to break away, which I'm glad that they did, actually. And when they would talk about being a part of the Holy Catholic Church, they were talking about the fellowship of believers and what true Christians actually believe. We don't believe in the rituals of the church for salvation. There's nothing wrong with rituals, a ritual like the Lord's Supper, or some of the other ones that more liturgical churches do, as long as they reflect uh, the scripture and are centered on Christ and don't become just something that a bunch of mind-numbed robots could do. And so um, we kind of have to be careful. But we're making the point here that Jude wrote about this, saying, I found it necessary. And the reason he says that is because this is a command of God to Jude. Jude, write this letter. Here's what I want you to write. And he wrote this very short letter, but very powerful letter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he did this because just as we've been talking about, there is always pressure to drift away from truth. Now, we've kind of picked on the Roman Catholics, but they're not the only ones that have become apostate. They're not the only ones to drift away. There are a lot of other denominations, even some of the ones that came out of the Reformation that are nothing like what their founders uh, would have envisioned them. There are several that came out of the Great Awakening in the early part of our nation's history, right around 
the War of Independence, there was a tremendous revival, the Great Awakening that uh, swept our land. But even some of those, like um, if you maybe grew up as a Methodist or have a background in that, my family kind of comes out of Methodism a few generations back. And um, the Methodists used to be very conservative and they were very evangelistic. In fact, particularly across the South, it was uh, John Wesley and people that followed him that went on horseback from town to town preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John and Charles Wesley both were very conservative. They were Bible-believing. They were Arminian. They leaned that way. But they were Bible-believing Christians, and they did preach the gospel. We sing some of Wesley's hymns. We love some of Wesley's hymns, in fact. Um, I think Hark the Herald Angels Sing was a Wesley hymn. And uh, And Can It Be, one of my favorites. Um, that would, that, that's from Wesley. And so um, you look at United Methodism now, and they look almost nothing like what their founders had envisioned and what they taught. De denominations and individual Christians, let's be fair, have a tendency to drift. And so the Word of God is constantly reminding us to make our calling and election sure, to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith, and also... Paul told Timothy, now Timothy was a pastor and a protege of Paul, and he told him you are to study, which the word there means be diligent, to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who needs not to be ashamed. Why did he do that to Timothy? Because there's always a tendency to kind of drift. There's always a tendency to get away from what the pure word of God says to what we think and what we philosophize about it. And so sometimes you'll see people that say, well, if A and B are true, well, then if I go over to C, certainly it's true. And they drift away from the truth. And sometimes they do it knowingly. Sometimes they do it unknowingly. And sometimes they do it deceptively. Our own Southern Baptist Convention has had a tendency to drift over the years and back in the 60s and 70s, there were people that were professors in our Southern Baptist colleges and seminaries that when they were talking to a local church congregation, they would use the same words that we would all use. They just had a different dictionary. And when they were in front of their students, then they were a little bit more honest. There was uh, a man that was on the liberal side during the controversy in the 80s. He was a pastor of a church, a prominent church, in Fort Worth, Texas, of all places, where Southwestern Seminary is. Now, he wasn't a part of Southwestern Seminary. He was a pastor of a church. Just want to make that clear. And he actually made the statement that the virgin birth is not important for Christians to believe because Mark didn't even record it in his, uh, in his letter, in his gospel. Well, that is a stretch beyond what I can comprehend. Mark had a different purpose that we won't get into in what he was writing, but uh, it's certainly clear all through the scripture, Jesus is born of a virgin. And uh, what is happening now, we're seeing some of the same things. There's kind of a drift toward the left in our Southern Baptist Convention. This last gathering of the convention in June 
was um, encouraging in some word, in some ways disturbing in some others. And there's always going to be this fight for the truth and this fight for the word of God. Well, that's not new and it's not unique to us. Jude writes about it, that he found it necessary to do this because Christians and churches and groups, they drift, they neglect the teaching and they neglect teaching new generations. There are a lot of times to where a movement starts that is very good when it first starts among the first generation, but the next generation is not quite as on fire about it, and the third generation uh, becomes more liberal and tolerant of liberalism, and it goes on from there. We've got to disciple new generations. And there's a tendency also for these new generations not only to be ignorant because we don't teach them, so I'm not saying it's their fault, but there's also a tendency to rebel, push the envelope, to try to do things in a more modern way. And uh, that's always a dangerous thing too. Always back to the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that's what we strive for, for ourselves, for our children, and even for our grandchildren and those others who come after us. Now, notice, secondly, when Jude writes about this, it's inspired. He said, I found it necessary to write. What was he writing? He's writing Scripture. And uh, the Bible tells us that Scripture is inspired. That means uh, God-breathed. Theonoustos is the Greek word, in case you wanted that. And uh, God has breathed out his word. The word inspiration does not mean, you know, sometimes we see something or hear something and we go, oh, that piece of art just inspired me or that song just inspired me. Well, that's not the word that's used in the Bible. The word that's used in the Bible is God breathed, telling us that scripture was breathed by a God of truth, preserved by a God of truth, and it and it alone is the word of God. And these writers were inspired to put this down. Jude was one of the writers. It was necessary for me to write appealing to you, he says. And so he's motivated by a burden. Now, if we were to ask Jude, and when you get to heaven, you can ask him what was on your heart and what was on your mind, he might share with you his burden, his reason from the human side of things for doing this. But what also happened is the Holy Spirit came upon Jude and began to inspire him to write these words. Now, the writers of Scripture were able to write using their own personalities and experiences and even their own education level. Uh, Paul's Greek is somewhat more educated and formal and precise than Peter's is. But nonetheless, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit protected it from error, and the Holy Spirit also has preserved it. And Jude says, I'm writing this. This is inspired writing. Inspired writing, it's authoritative for us. You can't just take what Jude says and decide whether you agree with it or not, because to disagree with Jude is to disagree with God. To disagree with Paul is to disagree with God. In fact, Paul even talks to the Thessalonians 
that one of the things he commended them for is when they preached to them, he said, you received it not as the word of men, but as it truly is the word of God. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he writes about sexual purity, he actually says, if you reject this, you're not rejecting man, you're rejecting God. And so it's important for us to realize that. And so Jude is telling us this was necessary to do it because of practical considerations of churches and believers and groups and movements. But it also is authoritative. It comes from God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out, that's the word inspired in the King James, by God and profitable. Notice all scripture is profitable. Even the parts you don't like, even the parts that bore you, it's still profitable. And what is it profitable for? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So whatever it is that you think will complete you, that'll make you a better parent, that'll make you a better pastor, that'll make you a better Christian, that'll make you a better husband or wife, there are books and things that we might read, but they are only good as they reflect accurately what the Bible teaches, and you need to go to the Word of God. Sometime back, there was a lady in our church that came to my wife and said, are there, is there any book you can recommend to help with raising children. And she had a disappointed look when Sammy told her, you might start with the book of Proverbs because she was looking for something else. Another time there was a lady that came to me and said, could we do some Bible studies? And I said, what do you think we do in Sunday school and in church? And she goes, no, I mean with a DVD or something like that. There's always a tendency for us to drift away from the importance of the Bible and to kind of say, oh, well, all they did was just, it was just the Bible. It wasn't really cool. It wasn't really technologically up to date. It wasn't really modern. It wasn't by somebody we recognize. And that's always a dangerous thing. So if you're kind of leaning that direction, I'm here to pull the reins in as your pastor and say, we need to get back to the word of God. I was in a church one time where somebody, I wasn't the pastor, uh, but somebody said something about a problem they were having. And I said, well, why don't you go talk to the pastor? And they said, oh, I've tried that, but all he does is give you scripture. Now think about what they were saying and think about what the Bible says and what Paul says about the Bible in 2 Timothy 3.16. It is what you need to be everything God intends for you to be. And anything you get that supplements it, whether it's one of my sermons, whether it's a book, whether it's a Bible study, is only as good as it accurately reflects the scripture, which means, yes, as I've said before, I'm giving you permission to check me out and make sure that what I preach lines up with the word of God. Don't take it from, for granted from me or anybody that what they say is true and right. Jude would, uh, well, he'll fuss with you over that, won't he? Number three, notice that it is a fight. He says it is our duty to contend for the faith. Contend, contention. When you think about truth, we as people of the truth and the truth of the word of God is always made to push back against the advance of error against the drift. It's kind of like if you have a boat that's being pulled away by the tide, 
the truth, the scripture, is the rope that tries to pull it back to the dock. And that's what we need all the time. And Christians are called in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. And the idea of preparation, we could also translate that readiness. It's the shoes with the spikes in the bottom of them that, for one thing, they protect our feet. And secondly, with the little spikes or studs that are on them, they allow us to stand firm or to get a good firm footing when the enemy is swinging their sword at us. You don't want to slip and fall down. And we've got to be ready. The Bible tells us that we're to be ready, for example, to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And so the battle is the Lord's, and He is the power that works in us, but we are the ones that are be, to be in His strength and power and for His glory, engaged in the fight for truth and against the drift that happens when truth begins to be exchanged for lies or compromises or any of those things. You understand what I'm saying, I'm sure. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And boy, that's hard to remember. Sometimes we tend to think that our enemies have flesh and blood when Paul says that they don't. We're to love our enemies. Well, then who do we fight? Well, notice he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, for one thing, notice that everything he uses to describe our enemy is plural. We tend to say, I'm fighting the devil, and that is true in one sense. But the real truth that we need to understand is we're fighting against the devil's fallen angels, those who followed him, the demons of hell. And that's why everything he says in there is plural. Only one devil, and he can't be everywhere at once, but he's got people, spiritual, uh, fallen spirits, fallen angels, demons, that are everywhere, everywhere, and we wrestle against them. Be on guard. And notice number four, as we kind of wrap things up, that it's timeless. Jude said, I had to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's not just for Bible days and Bible times. That's for now. Once for all delivered to the saints. You and I, as born-again believers, are saints. Did you know that? You're a saint. I'm a saint. You're either a saint or you ain't. And when I say you ain't, that's talking about you're lost. And there are a lot of lost church members. Billy Graham used to say that he thought that 75% of the people that sit in church on Sunday morning have never been born again. Well, I don't disagree with that because you know my testimony. I was one of them. And I learned how to function in church. I learned the lingo of the church. I even learned how to minister in the church before I was saved. I was an ain't. But as soon as I repented of my sins and confessed Jesus in Lord, as Lord and received His atoning blood as the full payment for my sin, I went from being an ain't to a saint. Got it? And that's what needs to happen for everybody. And how did I know that? What happened? Because the same thing, the same gospel 
that saved people in Jude's day is saving people now. The same thing that people needed to know when the Apostle Paul was preaching, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, is what we need to know now. And it's far more than turn over a new leaf. It's far more than get baptized. It's far more than just do better. In fact, it's even far more than you need to let Jesus into your heart. Where'd you get that anyway? That's not the gospel. The gospel is when we receive and believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the full payment for our sins. We don't add anything to it and we can't take anything away from it. It's Jesus and Jesus only that saves us. And we surrender to his lordship and he becomes the king, the lord, the master of our lives. That's been going on since the days of the New Testament and their confession was Jesus is Lord. Now we say that too, but there's nobody holding a gun to our head when we say it. And even back then, uh, I know they didn't have guns, but they would hold swords to their neck and say, you say that Caesar is Lord or die. And those early believers would say that Jesus Christ is Lord and uh, they would pay for it with their own life. That was the confession of the early church. It needs to mean more to us as well, doesn't it? Because it's the same gospel, the same truth, the same doctrine. And when Jude says it is the faith, there's an article in front of it because it's talking about a body of faith. And I believe he's talking about the word of God, that the word of God was once for all delivered to us. We don't add to it and we don't take away from it. We don't supplement it with visions or dreams. We don't add to it by some other testament. I saw a commercial for Mormonism. They said that we'll send you the Book of Mormon, a new testament, another testament of Jesus Christ. Well, that contradicts what the Word of God says, and especially the last part of Revelation, which says there's a curse for anyone who does that. So this is for us. This is to be passed on to new believers. It's for all times. It's for all races. It's for all generations. It's for all cultures. It's for all nations. That's why we have the Great Commission. And so it's contained in the Bible. And the Bible, of course, is alive. And it is the final and total revelation of God. Psalms 119 Verse 89 and 90 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. I think the King James says it's settled in heaven. They're not changing it, not rewriting it, not adding to it. There's not a sequel. There it is. And your faithfulness endures to all generations. There's the heart of God again to get this into the hearts of new believers, new generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. Why? Because the word of God is powerful. After all, he created the universe by his word, by the word of his power, the book of Hebrews says. And whenever you read your Bible, the word of his power is right there in your hands and God is speaking through his word. Someone says, if you want to hear God audibly, read your Bible aloud. And that's certainly true. Now, D.A. Carson writes concerning this. If you read it through carefully, now he's speaking of the Apostles' Creed, and slowly you'll see there's explicit mention of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, of creation, the virgin birth, the coming of Christ, his rising from the dead, who Christians are, 
what it means to have the Holy Spirit working within us and so forth, all in very brief uh, compass in words that millions and millions of Christians have either memorized or recite every Sunday or sometimes use as a part of their private devotion. And what he is saying is these are the truths that Jude was talking about, and they're the truths not that we reinvent every so often, not the truths that we change and update every so often. We don't have Bible 15.1, in other words, right? We just have Bible. And God doesn't need to change it because he gave it to us perfectly. And the word perfect not only means mistake-free, it means complete. And God has given us his complete revelation. Deuteronomy 29.29 says that there are secret things that belong to God. But it also goes on to tell us that he makes sure that we have everything that we need in what he reveals. And so whenever anybody comes along and says, oh, I've come up with a new theology or I've got a new way of doing Christianity or I've had a dream or a vision that clarifies everything, just smile and walk away from that because you've got the Bible. And in the Bible, you have everything that you need because it is indeed God's perfect word. It is the faith once for all delivered for the saints. So if you missed Sunday school this past week and you're watching this to stay uh, caught up with everything, I'm proud of you. That's a good thing that you're doing and uh, way to go. And if you are a teacher listening to this audio so that you can get ready for your class, way to go. I'm proud of you and I'm excited about what you're going to teach and how it's going to impact our church. Thank you so much for your time and may the Lord bless you and bless you in ways that are far beyond anything you could ask or think. Thank you.